0: Share with you, we've been going through the book of Acts and we got to chapter two, and uh, there's a lot of chapters, and we're going to be going through the whole book of Acts. We're going to be in here for quite a while. But today, I'm super excited about what we're going to talk about. How many of you have ever heard those jokes? Uh, how many people does it take to change a light bulb? You know, I mean, how many women does it take to change a light bulb? Oh, women can't change light bulbs, blah, blah, whatever. Anyway, so. Let me ask you today, how many Christians does it take to change a light bulb? Well, how many charismatics does it take to change a light bulb? Well, they say, well, one, because he's already got his hands up in the air. They say, how many Pentecostals does it take to change a light bulb? Ten. One to change the light bulb, and nine to pray against the spirit of darkness. How many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? None, because the lights will go on and off at the predestined time. How many Roman Catholics does it take to change a light bulb? None, because they believe in candles only. What about the Baptists? How many Baptists does it change to change a light bulb? This is my favorite. Baptists, 15. One to change the light bulb, and three committees to approve the change of the light bulb, and then decide who brings the potato salad and the fried chicken. How many Episcopalians does it take to change a light bulb? Three. One to call the electrician, One to mix the drinks, and one to talk about how much better the old light bulb was. How many Mormons does it take to change a light bulb? One to change the light bulb, and four wives to tell them how to do it. (laughs) What about Unitarians? How many Unitarians does it take to change a light bulb? Well, we choose to make a statement, neither in favor of or against the need for a light bulb. However, if in your journey you have found that light bulbs work for you, you are invited to write a poem or or (laughs) compose a modern dance about your light bulb for the next Sunday service, which we will explore a number of different light bulb traditions, including incandescent, fluorescent, three-way, long-life, tinted, which are all equal paths to changing a light bulb. How about Methodists? How many Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? Well, it's undetermined whether your light is bright, dull, or completely out, you are loved. You can be a light bulb, a turnip bulb, a tulip bulb. Bring a bulb of your choice to the Sunday lightning service and make sure you bring a covered dish to share. How many Nazarenes did it take to change a light bulb? Six. One woman to replace the light bulb and five men to review church lighting policy. What about Lutherans? How many Lutherans does it take to change a light bulb? None. Because Lutherans do not believe in change. And this one is my all-time favorite. How many Amish does it take to change a light bulb? What's a light bulb? Have you ever asked yourself, why are there so many different churches today? Why do so many people believe in so many different things? Have you ever asked yourself, why was this church over two two years ago started? I mean, what was the point in starting a new church and those are questions that, that many people can't understand. I remember when we started this church, uh, I remember speaking with, with a few different people from more traditional backgrounds. And they were like, what? Starting a new church? Who does that? Who starts a new church? I remember one woman was saying, what? I've never heard of anybody starting a new church. What do you think you are? You can just like, just get up and start a new church? Well, the reality was, over two years ago, we did start a new church. And that church lives and that church exists today. And the great thing about this church I love is that we are from all different backgrounds. And I just read a number of different types of uh, denominations or beliefs of Christians. And a lot of us are from all those different backgrounds. I mean, I don't think we got Mormons in here, but I think we've got like everybody else almost. And the reality is, is that we started this church for a particular reason. But yet the word church to so many people means an organization or just a building. When they think of church, they think of the building down the street. It's a place where Christians go on a Sunday and worship. However, the very first church had a very different view of church. And they had really a correct view of church. You know, the word church It's found over 150 times in the New Testament. And out of that 150 times, about 135 of those times, it is referred to a particular word that is translated from the Greek language. And the word is this, ecclesia. Ecclesia. Now, the word ecclesia, it's mentioned over 135 times in the New Testament. It did not start out to mean a church. In fact, this word ecclesia was used centuries before there was ever a church. It was a very familiar word with with the Greeks at the time. And it basically meant an assembly or a gathering of people. In fact, this word ecclesia was used mostly when a body of citizens were called out together or called together to discuss matters of the state. So it was like a congress or a senate. So if, in today's, uh, 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 if, if we were using this terminology today, we probably wouldn't be called Generation Church. We'd be called Generation Congress or Generation Senate. And then we would have nobody come to church if we were called that. But that's kind of what it was. They named this, these people or this gathering in the same word as what they meant, like a congress. And they use this word for the early church because there was a group of believers who believed in Jesus Christ and they assembled themselves together for a particular purpose. And this morning, we have gathered here in this movie theater. And we have gathered for a particular purpose. So that means this morning, we have become an ecclesia because we've come together for a purpose. You know... In Matthew chapter 16, and verse 19, Jesus said this. He says, he's talking to a guy called Peter, and he says, Peter, on you, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, or the gates of hell, will not prevail against it. Basically, Jesus was saying this to to Peter. He was saying, I will be the one who will assemble the pieces of my church together for a purpose. I will be the one who will assemble the people together for a purpose. So when we read the New Testament and we see this word ecclesia, we see it used in many different contexts. We see it refers to what we call the universal church, which is the, the church where all believers are part of the church of Jesus Christ. So the church in in Jerusalem, the church in Ephesus, the church in Corinth, the church in Colossae, in Antioch. All these different places that the Bible talks there was a church. If you combine them all together, then they are an ecclesia. But then it also refers to individual churches like the church in Jerusalem. There was a church in Jerusalem. They were called the ecclesia of Jerusalem. But it also referred to when there were small pockets of believers who just met in homes. And they just came together and prayed and studied God's word together. They were also called an ecclesia. So you may be asking, we've been going through the book of Acts. Well, what has this got to do with the book of Acts? Well, I tell you what it has got to do with the book of Acts. The book of Acts shows us the purpose of the ecclesia. The purpose of the church. And then it gives us a pathway or it gives us a guidebook into how to fulfill that purpose. So two weeks ago, when we started the book of Acts, we discovered that God said, or Jesus said to the disciples, He said, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Basically, that was the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church was to go and tell the world about the good news of Jesus Christ. And we talked about Basically, it's telling your story of how God has changed your life. And then last week, we discovered in Acts chapter 2 about what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon a church. And we, we, we discovered that the Holy Spirit gives us power so that we can go and tell the world about Jesus Christ, about their need for Jesus Christ. And that's the purpose of the church, to tell the world about Jesus Christ. Well, over the next four weeks... What we're going to do, we're going to stay in around Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3. And we're going to discover how we as a church or we as an ecclesia can start to gather for that particular purpose. So if you have your Bible this morning, if you want to turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. And we'll read to the end of the chapter. It says this, it says, all the believers They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. Then it says, each day the Lord added to to their fellowship those who were being saved, those who were finding faith in Jesus Christ. You know, when I read this passage, the very first thing that just jumps out at me is this. These believers, all these early Christians, this very first church or ecclesia shared community with each other. You know, I believe as a follower of Jesus Christ, I believe one of the basic requirements of being a follower of Jesus Christ is to share community with. With other believers. We'll discuss in a minute what I believe community means. I believe a follower of Jesus who does not associate themselves with other believers is first missing out on the incredible community that a church can bring. But I also believe, and I'll be careful how I always say this, but I believe that they are failing in their responsibility to the Ecclesia or the church of Jesus Christ. And there are some, I would say, they say they are followers of Jesus, but the reality is they are not part of the church of Jesus Christ. And we'll discuss in in, in weeks to come that in in, uh, uh, Corinthians, the Bible tells us that we are all part of a body. Each part has a function that we should use. And if you are not using that function, then you're not part of that body. You're not part of that ecclesia, that church. And so this morning, let's see what community really means. So the first thing here we see in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, it says, All the believers, they devoted themselves, firstly, to the apostles' teaching. But then it uses a word. It says, they devoted themselves to fellowship. To fellowship. I think fellowship can be such a, a Christian word to use. It's like, hey, we're having Fellowship. But the reality, the word here for fellowship is another Greek word. I'm not going to blow you in Greek words because I, I'm not Greek and I can't speak Greek. But the word here, it's a great word. It's called koinonia. And koinonia basically means the outcome of community when we start to contribute to one another's life. When we contribute to one another's life. These believers, the Bible says, they were in fellowship with each other and so it basically means they started to enhance each other's life you know one of my favorite movies is lord of the rings i'm like i remember when it came out in the movies i'm like we i must have seen like each episode i don't know how many times i remember one night i'd seen like the last one like three times at the movies and then we had had church on a sunday night and my friends were like let's go see lord of the rings let's see the late like showing on a Sunday night, and I'm like, okay, whatever. But we saw it and loved it. But the very first chapter, the very first film in Lord of the Rings was called Fellowship, the Fellowship of the Ring. And for those of you who are not Lord of the Ring fans, let me just explain what happens. Basically, it's all about this one ring that, uh, that has powers, and uh, it's like a magic ring. And what happens is that this ring is like drawing the armies of a place called Mordor. And so the only way to, and this, these armies want to overtake the world, and the only way to stop is to destroy the ring. And so what they do is they're, they're, they find out that there's this ring, so what they, they gather people from different tribes and different communities with one purpose. And that is to throw the ring back into the fires of Mordor and destroy the armies of Mordor. And so what they do is they gather these people, and there's a group of people who all have a different ability and a different function and a different purpose, but they've come together for one reason, and that is to destroy the ring. And they call it the fellowship of the ring. And that is like a church. We have all come together, different parts, different people come together with our different gifts and our different talents and our different contributions for one purpose. And that is to tell the world about Jesus Christ. This is how a church should function. And this morning, if you're not contributing to the church, then you are not taking part in what we call coin and ear. Let me tell you how to take part or how to contribute in a church. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5, uh, sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 11. It says, encourage each other and build each other up. Encourage each other and build each other up. One way that you can contribute to this church is to encourage one another, to build each other up. If someone's having a a problem or a down day, build them up. If someone is struggling in their faith, build them up. Encourage them to keep going. Keep on the path. Encouragement. Then, in Hebrews Chapter 10 and verse 24. It says, Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. That's kind of weird. I'm like, I've never thought about that before. So my role as a person who is part of this church or part of this ecclesia is to think of ways that I can motivate other people. Now, my, my, my role in this church is that I'm a pastor of this church. And so for me, it's like I do, think, I do think of ways. But I remember when I would sit in the chair and listen to someone else speak. So often I would not be, I'd be thinking about myself and what I needed to do not what I needed to do for other people. And I asked you this morning, how many of you have come in this morning and thought, wow, how can I motivate somebody else to do good works and love one another? How can I do that? That is a way that you can produce near in a church fellowship is by helping and motivating others, encouraging them, lifting them up, helping them be- to become better than what they already are. This is what these believers did. The Bible says that these believers, they saw an incredible increase. But every day, new people will be added to the church. And I honestly believe one of the reasons is because they came together in this fellowship and they started to encourage one another. And they started to build each other up. And they started to motivate one another to become better than what they already were. But community isn't just about contributing. Community is also about sharing or partaking together. The Bible says that these believers they shared with each other, they partook with each other. these believers that they, they just didn't bring a contribution, but they also gathered together. You know I honestly believe that these Americans these, uh, the believers were Americans and this is why I believe this very first church were Americans at heart. Because they love food. I mean, let's be honest this morning. Who doesn't like food here? These people love food. Everywhere you see that these people gathered, they were eating. If they were from Maryland, they would be having a crab feast every single day with extra old bayon. I'm sure of it. These believers ate together all the time. And when they started to eat together, they started to take communion with each other. You know, when we take communion here as a church, we pass rounds like these disposable like wafers that really don't taste good at all, and these uh, and these little like juices, and we. But this isn't how these people took communion. These people they took communion. They had a big banquet. They had a big feast, and then they remembered the Lord's death while they were taking that banquet. They partook together. You know, it amazes me how food brings people together. Food brings families together. Food brings friends together. And food brings churches together. You know when we were doing the joke about the Baptist and says, you know, someone to decide who to bring the, uh, the potato salad and the fried chicken? It's true. It's, I mean, it's true. Churches love to eat. You know, I am no fan of potlucks. When I came to America, I got introduced to potlucks. And I'm not a fan of potlucks, and i tell you why. Because I've been sick loads of times at potluck. Now, I don't think anything less than me. But I always check to see who's bringing what. So I know what I can eat and what I can't eat. I'm just saying. Because I've been sick of potlucks before. But even though I don't like potlucks, I love the message and the meaning behind potlucks. Because what they are, it's basically people sharing together with one another. Let me tell you. How the Bible talks about sharing together. In one Corinthians chapter eleven, verses seventeen to thirty-four, it says this: it says it's the apostle Paul talking to a church in Corinth, and he says, "In the following instructions, I cannot praise you, so they weren't doing what Paul wanted them to do." It says, "For it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together." First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And to some extent, I believe it. But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you have God's approval to be recognized. For some of you have God's approval and you will be recognized. He says, when you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. I'll be honest, I don't like people who are like that. I love to share meals. I love to take some of other people's plates and share. It says, as a result, and it's biblical, see. <laughs> it says, as a result, some of you go hungry while others get drunk. I'm like, what kind of church is this? They eat and then they get drunk. I'm like, whoa. It says, what? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church, and shame the poor. What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, certainly I will not praise you for this. So if they're taking for themselves, Paul's saying, I'm not going to praise you for that. And he says, For I press unto you what I receive from the Lord himself. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread, and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it and into pieces, and he said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup after supper, saying the cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with Jesus' blood. Do this in remembrance, uh, in remember, to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. So when you are meeting together and eating together and remembering God, you are remembering the Lord's death until Jesus comes again. In verse 27 it says, So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthy is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup if you eat the, eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring in the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. This is why you are weak and sick and some have even died. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the Lord. Now listen to this. It says, So dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. Paul is basically saying, when you come together, share. When you come in together and you take communion, take it together. Share, partake together. And Acts chapter 2, in the early church, and it is an example of how these people shared. They shared in the breaking of bread and communion. Because they came together with one purpose. And that was Jesus Christ. But as we read through Acts, we start to see that they just didn't share their meals. But they shared their possessions. They shared their skills. They shared their homes. They dived fully into community. Now there are are some people, and there's some churches out there, and I'm not sure if I agree with this, but they kind of like just all live together in one community and they get together and they, they share, they sell all their houses and put together in one part and things like that. I'm not sure if I, I believe in that because I believe that we're a light to the world and we need to, to share with other people who don't know Jesus as well. But I do believe as a church, we should come together and we should share with one another. You know, community doesn't happen by chance. Community happens when we are intentional about sharing and contributing. I mean, give a quick example. My wife and myself just bought a new house, and when we went on the on the house buying journey, we were like, "We want a new house. We do not want to fix her up. We uh, we want to move in ready. We don't even want to paint. We just want to like put our furniture in there." So, what did we end up getting? We got a fixer up and it is hard work. And so there's a lot of work that we've been doing. We've been remodeling our kitchen and our living room and our dining room and, you know, every other idea that my wife has. And uh, But I couldn't do it by myself. But yet, we're almost done with our remodel. And the reason that we're almost done with the remodel is because people in the church have helped and shared their skills and their talents and their time. And that's just a. A very materialistic way or material way of looking at it. But yet, that's how a church should function. We should come together and we should share together, whether it's our possessions if someone's in need, whether it's our time if someone needs our time, whether it's our finances if someone is struggling, whether whether it's our skills, our gifts, and our talents. This is what this early church did. And the result was they changed their city and their community for Jesus Christ. Community doesn't happen by chance. These people contributed to one another. They shared with one another. And then the final thing I want to mention this morning, they just enjoyed each other. They did life together and they enjoyed each other. I I remember growing up in church and you would like see some people and you're like, there's no way I would even talk to this person if they did not go to the same church as me. One thing I've discovered over the last couple of years, is that the people in your church, in the same church that you go to, can suddenly become the best friends that you've ever had in your life. And there's people in this church I did not know two years ago, and now I would consider them some of my best friends. Why? Because we started doing life together. The early believers in this, in this very first church, they started to spend time together. The Bible says that they shared everything in common. They shared everything in common. So they played fantasy football together. They watched the Ravens beat the Pats together. They uh, watched the Orioles get to the postseason together. They ate together. They remodeled the past house together. They did these things together. And they discovered that the more time that they spent together, the more time they enjoyed each other. People who will want strangers when they're friends and they discover when spiritual community happens, one of the results is friendship. And I don't know about you this morning, but you may be in here and you may be looking for friends. not saying you're alone or anything like that, but you just know that you need real friendship. Let me tell you, when you start to contribute and share, you start to discover what friendship really is all about. You know, This church, we have so many different people from different backgrounds. And I'll be honest, if we did not have this church, there's probably we would not, some of us would not be friends. Because we're so different. I would have not sought you out to be a friend. You probably wouldn't have sought me out to be a friend. If you call me a friend, that is. You know, we have a men's group that meets every Tuesday night. And we meet just over at Starbucks. And I remember when we started the group, we were a bunch of strangers meeting. It was kind of awkward because... Our conversation would stop and start and, and things like that. But we've been meeting for nearly a year now. And I can honestly say that those guys are my friends. People from very different backgrounds. Let me tell you what we've got. We've got an engineer. We've got a scientist who studies diseases. It's kind of just weird. We've got a contractor. We've got a skilled laborer. We have a uh, computer uh, geek. And then we have me. These people do not mix. Trust me. I, well, one thing I have a, a, I have a part-time, uh, well, a job as well as, as as being a pastor. And part of my job is is being in insurance. And one thing I was always tell insurance guys and engineers don't get on. You know, they just don't get on because engineers annoy insurance people to the core. But yet I'm getting on with an engineer. It's like praise the Lord. But that's what happens. When a church comes together, people from different backgrounds, people who would not even think that they were friends start to become friends. And there's some of the guys that, I'll be honest, there's no way that I would have ever been friends with them, but yet they have become some of my closest friends. Because koinonia happened, fellowship, we contributed to each other's life, and we started to share, and then we enjoyed each other, and we enjoyed life together. You know, C.S. Lewis, who wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, said this. He said, friendship is unnecessary like philosophy and art. It has no survival value. Rather, it is one of those things that give value to survival. And I've said that about community. Community has no survival value. You could get a with this with this life without having community. Community won't save you from, you know, All these terrible things. But what community will do, it will give you something to survive for. And a church without community isn't really a church. But a church with spiritual community is a church that comes together and can be effective for Jesus Christ. You know, the difference between this group of believers in Acts 2 and the majority of churches, I would say, especially in the United States, is that this church put an emphasis on spiritual community. They weren't socialites, but they were average people who recognized the power and importance that an ecclesia can have when it values fellowship, when it values sharing, and it starts to do life together. Not because they wanted to be a social club or anything like that, but because they recognized that together they can make a big difference and reach people that individually they could not reach a guy called John Foster who wrote uh, quite a few books on spiritual disciplines. And if you ever want to pick up one of his books, they're great books, but don't read them before you go to bed because they'll put you to sleep. But he said this. He said, perhaps one of, uh, no one has captured the exuberant spirit and simple caring and sharing better than the philosopher Arsethes, whose words were written in A.D. 125, so moving that they are best quoted in full. And he's quoting the early church. He says, "...they all walked in humility and kindness. And falsehood was not among any of them. And they loved one another. They despised not the widow and grieved not the orphan. He that has distributed liberally to him does not go without. If they see a stranger... They bring him under their roof and rejoice over him as if they were their own brother. They call themselves brethren, which means brothers. Not after the flesh, but after the spirit of God in them. But when one one of their poor passes away from the world and any of them see him, he provides for his burial according to his ability. And if they hear that any of their number is imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, all of them provide for his needs. And if there is among them a man that is needy and poor, and they have not an abundance of necessaries, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with their food. Can you believe that? These early believers, if someone in their church had a need and they could not provide for that need, they fasted and prayed that God would help them provide that need. I don't know about you that challenges me. Because I look over our congregation and I see needs everywhere. And I ask myself, am I fasting and praying to help meet those needs? That is spiritual community. You know, each month we do so, we just do a social activity together. So October we're going to go to the Maryland uh, Renaissance Festival. We don't do it just because we just like a social club and we're having a church outing, an ice cream social, having a good time. We do it in order to share community with each other, so we enjoy life together. Because when there is spiritual community, there is power. And when there is power, lives are changed. And I ask you today as we close. What contribution is God asking you to make? What do you believe that God has given you that he wants you to share with others? What do you need to do within this ecclesia, in this church To start doing life together with others. Let's pray. As your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. I don't know this morning what you're bringing to this.